much in love with one another as we were when we started. So the program has been good. It's been uh, uh, good for both of us. We both have a program. My wife's been in Al-Anon as long as I've been in Alcoholics Anonymous. And, uh, and we've kind of grown together. It's like looking down a railroad track when you first stand on the railroad track. It's 26 and a half inches apart. When you look down the track, it gets narrower and narrower. And that's how our, our uh, journey has been in Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon. Um, by the grace of God and the fellowship of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and strong sponsorship, um, I've been sober since uh, December the 24th, 1972. Um, I, <clears throat> I came into Alcoholics Anonymous uh, by the grace of God. It wasn't because I wanted to be here, but there was a guy that, that uh, knocked on my door, asked me if I was running a little trouble with the way I was drinking. He was going to a newcomer's meeting that night, and he asked me if I might want to ride along. Now, I don't know what he expected me to say because my wife was sitting right across the table from us and I knew whatever I said, she'd throw her two cents in there and screw everything up. And so I said, and I think this was a miracle, I said, sure, I'll, I'll go with you. Now, I thought maybe when he told me that, uh, that uh, in Alcoholics Anonymous they talk about drinking, I thought maybe that they would tell me how I could learn how to drink, how I could stop at the sixth drink or whatever. You see, I kept trying to learn how to drink. I could... Once I started, I couldn't get stopped, mind you, and I always wanted to stop at the sixth drink. I didn't really want to get drunk. I just wanted to take, have that perfect peace and ease, you know, after that happy-go-lucky feeling we get. That's where I wanted to stay there. But every time I got there, I shot right through there, and I couldn't get back there, and each time was the same thing. I shot right through there, and I couldn't get back there. And consequently, the next thing I would remember would be the next morning. And uh, the last thing I remember is going into the bar or starting to drink and wanting only a couple of drinks, just enough to take the edge off of things. But it would never stop at that. So when he told me they talked about drinking, I really came to hear how uh, you could help me stop at that sixth drink. Um, on the way up there, he said, uh, well, first and foremost, it was Christmas Day, and my in-laws had just left and left a bunch of grub, and, and uh, this guy had called, and, and he wanted to come over and, and visit with me. And... and uh, you know, I, I knew he didn't have any friends. I, he went to a, a treatment uh, spin-drive place, and he came back, and the guys that worked didn't visit him very much or talk to him very much. And I knew he didn't have very many friends. I'd heard he joined Alcoholics Anonymous, mind you, and so I kind of would befriended him a little bit. He damned if he didn't sneak up behind me and, and uh, invite me to the meetings. Um, on the way up there, he told me that uh, just to have an open mind, you know. And I think any time you tell an alcoholic, you know, they, the wheels just started spinning. I knew it was going to be, you know. I knew it was going to be, you know, everybody come forward and tap you on the head. And, and you know, you'd be healed and that you're cured. See, that's what my thinking was. Our, the other thing was that it was going to be a question and answer deal. You know, you people asking me the questions and me sitting here trying to figure out what the hell the answers might be. That's what my thoughts were. But we... When I got to the meeting, my foot didn't hit the inside the door. There was five guys that stood up and shake my hand. First time in my life that somebody wanted to shake my hand that did not have to buy, qualify, prove, or do anything for, and it felt pretty good. And so I, I, I just, by the grace of God, came to that meeting. By the grace of God, I felt you people wanting to help me. I knew, and as we know when we come into Alcoholics Anonymous, this attraction that we run into is people giving up, up caring about us, caring about the newcomer. When a newcomer comes to the group, we all run over there to help the newcomer. We all sponsor the newcomer until the newcomer gets a sponsor, and then we all back off. But until that happens, everybody there is trying to carry the message to the newcomer, and that's as it was with me. And so it was by the grace of God. But we have a fellowship here. The fellowship is so, like I said, it's so attractive that, that people come back to second meeting just to see if they call them the first, the, the same name they called them the first meeting, you know. When you come to the second meeting, everybody says hi to you and they call you by your name. You come back to the third meeting just to see if they'll do it again. All that attention that you get, it feels good because when we came in here, I, you know, nobody, <laughs> nobody even wanted me around anymore, let alone give me any attention, you know. But when you come into Alcoholics Anonymous, it's a whole deal. You know, everybody's there to give you whatever they think that you should have or, or that, uh, that they want to help you understand. And so the fellowship is so great. I'm not naive enough to believe that anybody wants to hear what I say, but I think I believe that people come to this meeting just in case that newcomer comes back, just to see if that newcomer comes back so they can help them a little bit more. 
or maybe they're walking hand, hand in hand with another person that's both staying sober, like my friend, you know, you know my, Paul knows my friend Wes. We've been walking together for over 40 years. And so just like we're friends for 40 years, that's, that's unreal. But we, well, we've been walking together in this fellowship ever since. And that's how it is. I think that every once in a while, not every once in a while, but every meeting we come back, come by just to see if our friend is still there. And we get seeing one another. Even when you go to a roundup or, a, or assembly. If you go to assembly and you see in every three months or six months, however often you meet as assembly, you go there and you see somebody from a different town there, and they're still sober and you're still sober. I went up to Winnipeg one time, and Tom Breed, a good friend of mine up there, he saw me, hadn't seen me for a while, and he said, son of a goalie, you're still sober. And my buttons just flew off my shirt because I was still sober. <laughs> right? And, and it feels good. People recognize that people make you feel good. And so the fellowship is just so strong. But we got the program. And the program is as such as a, it's a 12-step program. The, 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 the program itself is, is 12 steps, but they're, they're uh, spiritual in nature. That the 12 steps are. And they, and they practice as a way of life they expel the obsession to drink. And they give the sufferer, enable the sufferer to be of happily and usefully whole if practiced as a way of life. And so if I practice these steps, I'm going to become whole. I'm going to become complete. But I have to do the steps. And everybody tells you to do the steps. And you know how we are. I, I was, you know, I didn't know what the steps were all about. I went to step meetings. I only went to step meetings because I was, I had a bad attitude. I had a bad attitude when I came in. After the first week, everything kind of wore off a little bit, you know. I really didn't want to quit drinking because it was an answer to me. It was not a problem. See, sober, I couldn't do much of anything. I was restless, irritable, and just kind of like, like Silkworth says. I, I was just nervous. It's all get up. But I could have a couple of drinks, and I just had a perfect peace and ease, you know. That, that drinking gives us, you know, and that's what I wanted. So it was an answer to me. I was shy, insecure. I couldn't say two or two words without stuttering, and, and, and I couldn't do much of anything. But you give me a couple of drinks, and I could dance on the tables, you know. And, <laughs> and, and so it was an answer for me. It was an answer for me. It was not a problem. only problem I had is when I run out of booze and I run out of money, and they both happened at the same time. Now, that's a problem, right? <laughs> And we all come in here because we have problems. I don't know of too many people that just stop by here and say, well, I'm just coming to see you folks in Alcoholics Anonymous. Life is great. I'm just coming in to see how you're doing. Nobody comes in here unless we have a problem. And the problem has to be where our bottom is kicking us. Our bottom is kicking us. Because let me tell you, if you've got a little bit of room to go, you're going to wear out that room before you come back in, right? And so my bottom was getting pretty close. And so we come, into, we come into here, and they tell us to do the program. Well, you know what I did? I, I went to newcomers, newcomers, newcomers. You know what newcomers is like, you know. It was 21 people in newcomers when I came in. And the first guy had six beers, the next guy had 12, the next guy had 18, and it was only 21. And by the time the guy got to the 21st person, that guy was drinking ever since he came out of the womb, you know. <laughs> That's how it is in newcomers. Can you top this? Can you top this? And pretty soon the storytelling, and everybody's trying to top the next guy. And newcomers... Once you identify, they told me, get the hell out of there and get into the steps. And I did. And I sat in newcomers. And finally, I'd been in newcomers for about two and a half months. And, and the chair that night, he recognized me. He said, you got something to say? And I said, you bet I got something to say. I said, I'm coming to these Alcoholics Anonymous meetings now for about two and a half months. And I want you to know this has been the most miserable two and a half months of my life. Well, he looked at me. And he said, well, now that you're aware of it, the struggle begins. I thought, what a hell of a thing tells guys having a little trouble. But it got me out of there, and it got me in across the hall working the steps. The program is in the steps. But I went in there. I had a bad attitude. It's just like I heard that my first roundup, which was about, well, it was in uh, 73. First roundup, Dave Aronofsky from Texas. You maybe heard him. And he was telling the story about his, this young couple in Texas that got married. Big Texan, big Texan. And that night on their honeymoon, he throws his pants over his wife, and he says, here, Honey, try these on. And she says, well, you know, I can't wear your pants. Well, just remember that. You know, kind of know who's boss in this family. And so she's about fair play. So she took off her pants and she threw it at him. She's, you know, try, try these. And she says, well, he says, you know I can't get in your pants. Yeah, and she says, it's going to stay that way until you change your attitude. <laughs> and, that's, and that's the way it was. I had to change my attitude because I didn't have a very good attitude when I came in. So when he said that, he got my attention right away. See, if you want to do these steps, first and foremost, you have to have somebody that's going to take you through those. 
to know how to do them. I don't think any of us come in here and pick them up right away. Although, at a step meeting, and I went to several of them, I got to borrow what, what Tom said or what Pete said or what Don said or what Mike said, and I kind of adopted that. You know, I start talking about like that, see? Well, the trouble is if you're not doing the step, you don't get that little feeling that you're supposed to get out of that step. In other words, you don't get that experience that we get from doing the steps. I was just repeating what somebody else said, but I wasn't getting the feeling. And until you do that, you're not going to get the end result. And so I was just kind of tagging along. Come on in. I was just tagging along, you know. I was just enjoying it. I was just enjoying how it was going. But I wasn't enjoying it because I was getting more miserable and more miserable and more miserable. My sponsor told me it was the guy that was eventually going to be my sponsor. He was the guy that, at my meeting, you know how they do it when it's your first meeting, they got a chair up there, and he kind of opens it up like Mark did tonight, and then you got the people going around, they read how it works. Gee, I can remember that night the guy who led the meeting was all dressed up in a suit and tie, and mind you, it was Christmas Day night, but I thought to myself, well, he must be the president here. He all dressed up and sitting ahead of the table and whatnot, and the next guy was the guy that brought me. He didn't say a word the whole meeting. I thought he felt guilty for bringing me up there, you know. And, and, and the next guy was a gal that read the, the, the How It Works. She was nervous. She was so nervous. Elsie did a much better job tonight. But she was so nervous, I thought she was going to fly right out of the room, you know. And then there was an Indian chap right on the end of the table, and I was here, and the Indian chap said, if you have trouble with this God bitch, don't pay any attention to it, he says. Use the people around this table as, as your higher power or your God. And that's what I did. I used those people as my higher power, what they call God. And so, and the next guy, he, he was sitting there, and he smoked cigarette after cigarette after cigarette, and I thought, by God, this is a guy that really looks like a drunk, you know. If there's a guy that looks like a drunk, he's the one that looks like one. And, and, and later on, he became my, well, he's the guy that looked out for me. And so one night, we're, we're sitting there, at the, and, and he says, you know, oh, it's your night to pick up old Joe, you know. And so I thought to myself, if you want old Joe at that meeting, you go and pick him up. But I didn't say that. I went and picked up old Joe. And on the way back to picking up old Joe, I was telling him all these wonderful things about Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't know if I believed him or not, but I was filling him full of this stuff, you know. And, and as I was telling him, I got a little bit of giddy up in my step, you know. I started feeling pretty good. I started feeling a little bit better. And so from that point on, I knew that I had to give something away to get that feeling back. Now, I didn't know how to do this step since the one time he says to me, he says, you know, I got four cronies that I can't get to the meeting. You know, these are guys that can't. They, they just can't get to the meeting. I mean, they, they drink in between and all, just can't get them there. And he says, I'm going to take them over and I'm going to invite them to my house. He said, you come over and, and read to them, you know, read the book to them. And so I went over with him. I said, sure, I'll, I'll do it. I'll be helpful, you know. I mean, and I went over there that night and he said, you, you, you do the read. Well, you know, I started reading this book and we went through the book with those four cronies. And every time it said do, I did. And because of that, I did the steps, the 12 steps the first time, okay? And so that was kind of my introduction, introduction to Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and, and I started doing that. Of course, it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't too, too, uh, too much longer than that, too much down the road. Is, and, and anyway, I tried, to, I tried to understand these steps. And when you start reading from the front of the book, the first, first thing you run into, it says, we of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a hopeless state of mind and body. To show other alcoholics precisely have recovered is the main purpose of this book. And we hope that they've proved so convincing that no further altercation will be necessary. In other words, the plan, they say, is in this book. The plan showing how we can recover from a hopeless state of mind and body. And see, any alcoholic worth their grain of salt out there that comes in, they have to understand that we're hopeless, mind and body. No matter what happened the night before, no matter how many times that I went and did this, that, and the next thing, you see, the next day, Come noon, I was looking for a drink. It happened every time. Even though I woke up in the morning so full of guilt and remorse for the stuff I did before, I was back at it. So my mind was convincing me that, oh, it's okay to have a drink, or however it just started. And once I got that booze in my system, I could not stop. 
They told me that if I'd be alcoholic like them, that they would never come where I said, give me the stopper, wherever I could stop at the sixth drink. If I had that stopper, I'll be okay. I said, I either drink until I pass out or black out or thrown out, drug out or what have you. And the old guy with the suit on says, I can sure identify with you there. I missed all World War II in a blackout. Now, that was the first guy that I said, hey, he's just the same as I am. I was a blackout drinker. If you want to know more about me than I've already told you tonight, you need to ask my wife because I was not there. <laughs> she was there. I was not there. But I, I, that made a lot of sense to me. You see, every time I went out to have a drink or two or ever since I can remember, when I was in, in, going to school at 13 years old, mind you, 13 years old is when I first started drinking at a dance. And the only reason I started drinking that night is because they had a big dance hall and everybody was dancing and then they had a side door and all the guys went out the side there. And I went out there to see what the hell they were doing. And they formed a circle and they passed the jug around. Remember the old passing the jug around the, the, the circle? And I took a great big snort out of that bottle and I was barely able to keep it down and come around again. And I took another snort out. And you know, I walked into that dance hall. I was not any scared any more scared of those girls or nervous around those girls and geez it was just like a whole new deal I mean I was dancing yet I didn't know how to dance but I was dancing <laughs> I was carrying on like this was the best thing that ever happened to me I felt normal I felt just like everybody else that I could see or that I thought was feeling good and I felt good and so I was there and I was having a good time. Now I can't tell you what I did. I know it was the first experience I had with somebody of the opposite sex. I know I enjoyed myself. I don't know what I did, but I know I enjoyed myself. I had a few drinks. I threw up a little bit. Whatever it was, I had a good time. The next morning, I just said, I went right back to where I was the day before. I was still a shy, insecure individual. Didn't know what to do. Didn't know where to go. Didn't know how to do it. But I remembered one thing. When I had that drinky, I was a new person. And so my answer was to follow that drinking. And guess what I did? I hung around with the older guys. I was about as tall as most of them. And so I hung around with those guys because obviously they like to see me have a little drink or two. You know, I was one of those guys that you give me a drink, I almost did anything. You know, they dared me to do something. I, and I suppose it was fun for them. And so I, I hung around with those older kids, older kids. And then we started putting our nickels and dimes and quarters and half dollars together and to get the bootlegger to buy us booze. And the bootlegger, a lot of the bootleggers would only buy them for 17 and 18 year old kids. They wouldn't buy for us 13 or 14 year old, 13 or 14 year old kids. And, and, and they, uh, anyway, here, here. Anyway, they, they the, the, I, I had the inside track because my uncle was one of the bootleggers. So he bought for me, so I didn't have to worry about that as long as I had the nickels and dimes and quarters and a half dollars. He would buy it. But uh, long story short, long story short, I hung around with those guys, and, and I can remember going through high school, and, and my, more than anything else, is I wanted to drink. I wanted to drink. Now, I didn't, I was telling my wife this the other day, I didn't necessarily go to school to learn. I mean, I graduated and everything, I, but I, I didn't study very much, but I, on, on, a, on a, when this had the six-week test, I memorized everything. Everything I'd get my hands on, I memorized and I passed the test and so on and so forth. But I didn't go to school to learn. As you can tell, my, I, when I talk, I can't pronounce some words and I leave out some. Cher and I are at the age now where I'm at the age now where I, 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 I drop sentences. You know what dropping sentences is? When you can't put the word in there, so you just drop it. She says, you know, you're a hell of a guy to communicate with. You give me half a sentence on Monday and the other half on Friday and you expect me to carry a conversation with you. <laughs> but, but if you can put the word in there, I'll be, you know, we'll get along fine. But, but Sharon and I went together in, in, in high school and Sharon could drink right along with the rest of us, you know. She didn't have no problem drinking with us. And, and, uh, and of course, after high school, we got married and, and, uh, and uh, I went to Buckland, Kansas from North Dakota. I went to Buckland, Kansas and I... And anyway, the, 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 the crops weren't ready to go, so we had a lot of drinking time. And we didn't wear too much drinking for anything, but I ended up in convulsions. Now, I don't know what convulsions are, mind you, but I ended up in the hospital. And the doctor told me that I could not drink. Now, that didn't make a sense because I knew I could drink. But he said, you can't drink. And for about six months, I got scared. And I got scared because I couldn't tell 
about those convulsions. I, I didn't know what they were. I thought, well, geez, I might slip into something and not get back, you know. I mean, I didn't know what it was. And so I quit for six months, and then after six months, I started again, and this time it was a lot different. This time I experienced a lot more blackouts, and, and, uh, and it seemed like it took me less to get there, and I, and, and, uh, and I was drinking more, and I was drinking more often, and, and uh, so somewhere along the line, I think I crossed the line. But uh, along with that, Sharon and I got married, and, and I became a father, and, and, uh, and, and it both happened just about the same time, you know. Uh, anyway, I became a father, and, and, and pretty soon we had another boy, and we had two boys, and the responsibilities would get overwhelming, and I just couldn't handle it, and I started drinking more. And, uh, and, and, and then that merry-go-round just really, really, uh, uh, really, really got terrible because I was, like I said, I was a blackout drinker. I didn't know what I was doing. I was hiding around buildings. I was rolling around the church lawns. I was doing all kinds of things that uh, cops were cops were trying to get my, my attention. I was coming out of a blackout looking face-to-face -face with a cop, and he wanted answers, and I didn't even know what the hell the questions were, you know, and that's the way I acted. And... Uh, Long story short, Sharon and I had a conversation on one Sunday, and she told me, she said, Ole, I think you're killing yourself through the way you're drinking. You can do that if you want to, but the boys and I, we don't have to stick around. And I knew that, I knew I, I knew that she was just sick and tired of me. And, uh, and so I told her, I said, well, you know, I'm going to try to, I'm, I'm going to try to cut down. I didn't say I'd try to stop, but I said I'd try to cut down. I think that lasted about two weeks and off and running I was again. But let me tell you about the, towards the end of my drinking, probably over the last three, four, or five years, my drinking was, was the kind where I would, uh, for whatever reason, I, 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 after work, I worked uh, for the railroad and I worked from seven to three and of course you couldn't go home right at three o'clock. I had to stop on the way home and sometimes I would make it home by supper time. But I'd come home at supper time, and, and uh, I'd look at Sharon, and Sharon would have that, you know, those brown eyes looking right at me, you know. She didn't say nothing, mind you, but this is what I thought she was saying. I thought what she was looking, when she was looking at me, I thought she was saying, you know, you're nothing but a damn drunk. You're really sickening. You're just like all your other drunken relatives. I don't know what thing, you know, used to nobody or whatever. No, she didn't even open her mouth. But when I thought that, along comes this, and this is what I said verbally. You know, I think I'll go down to the bar with all my friends, because there ain't nobody friendly around here. You know, that's what I would say. And I would pick a little bit of a fight or whatever, even though she wasn't fighting, and I'd go back down to the bar. <coughs> and I went back to the bar, and this is the way I acted. Now, you got to imagine, I've been drinking from 3 to 6, and this was probably at 6.30 or so, and I'd go, and I'd, and I'd start drinking at the bar. And after a few drinks, I'd look around the room. And if you were looking at me, I got a little nervous, you know. And I'd look over there again. If you were still looking at me, I got a little bit more nervous. And the third time, I'd walk over there and ask you what the hell you were looking at. So there's something wrong with the way I look or the way I dress or what's the problem here. Now, I want you to know when you start acting like that, it gets a little tough on the teeth. You know? I always told, I always, when I tell this story, I always say that, Every one of those guys that I did that to, they're always twice as big as I was. And then I realized I was the one laying on the ground looking up at them. Naturally, they were bigger than I was, you know. But that's the way I acted. And, of course, they call the cops, and then the cops give you a ride around town, you know. And I'd call the cops. I'd talk about their mother a lot, you know. And the cops didn't like that, you know. They really didn't like that. They didn't like me. I didn't like them. And it was pretty obvious. But lo and behold, they give me a ride most of the time. They give me a ride home. Um, of course, a Sharon's story is they put me in the front of the the, the, the front door, and she said, "Now you keep him in the rest of the night." And I'd go through the house out the back door. I'd be him. Well, anyway, you know that kind of stuff. Um, my last drunk, I almost. Well, I, I guess before that, I guess before that, one time before that, um, cops didn't take me home. They took me to the psych ward. And a lot of you people know what the psych ward is, you know. Um, I can remember I was causing quite a ruckus and on the psych ward, you know, and they put you in, you come in there, and, and I remember I was laying on this gurney, and there was a uh, six foot four, five, six nurse there, a female nurse, and she had a big needle like that. She thought maybe I should 
go to sleep. And so I looked at that needle and I said, you don't have to bother with that, I'm sleeping already. And uh, the next morning, a knock on the door, they put me in a room there and knock at the door and a guy came in and he says, are you ready to come out? And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm ready to come out. And uh, he says, why can you put on your clothes and you come out? And I put on my clothes and, and uh, went out. There's a great big room and there were a lot of people like this and a couple, there were a lot of people around that table eating breakfast. And I looked at those people and you know, I didn't, I didn't belong in that crowd. I just didn't belong in that crowd. So I went over and sat way over in the corner by myself. And just then the doctor came up and the doctor came over to the corner and he says, uh, you have a problem? I said, no, I don't, no, I don't have a problem. And he said, well, I thought you were up here to get dried out. Oh, jeez, I haven't drank enough to even think about getting dried out. And he says, well, you can go. And so we were walking towards the elevator and then the elevator door opens and out steps my wife. And I saw that. So I said to the doc, kind doctor, I said to the doctor, I said, you know, doc, maybe you can help me out of here a little bit. I got one of those nervous type wives, I said, didn't. And so the doctor was writing out and he wrote Sharon out a prescription of tranquilizers, you know. So he's telling her how to take these tranquilizers and I saw some tears coming down from her eyes. And I knew I'd hurt her one more time, you see. But I didn't know what to do about that hurt. The only thing I knew about that hurt was to go out and do the same thing that night. And that's the way it was, night after night. I had so much guilt and remorse in the morning, I just could not hardly stand to be with my own skin. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought about it, and by noon I was saying, well, you know, I just think I need a couple of drinks, just enough to ease things. And of course, I'd start drinking right away, you see. Same thing, merry-go-round. And you and I both know, if we don't get on that, got that merry-go-round, merry-go-round will screw you right into the ground. And we bury a lot of guys, six feet under, because that merry-go-round screws you right into the ground. And if you don't get off, you have no way of getting off, that's where you're going to end up. And so consequently, and as I told you before, when the guy, uh, I almost died as a result of not being able to take care of myself physically, and he heard about it at work and knocked on my door and invited me to Alcoholics Anonymous. And so that was kind of like my experience of, of, of my alcoholic drinking. Now, when I come into the Alcoholics Anonymous, I really, really, really thought that I was only be here for a short period of time. I'd learned enough to where I could learn how to drink, and that's not soap. Now, Silkworth describes us as, a, as once we take a drink, and most people, most people will tell you this. You hear out in the public where somebody will say, oh, he's, Joe, he's such a hell of a nice guy, but you give him a couple of drinks and he's just total opposite. And we hear it all the time. And, and people that misunderstand this don't know, don't know what, what, what it actually is. But the problem is, is that most of them, and this is what, what happened in the 30s, most of them thought that their Alkies were just weak-willed people. And most of them let us, let us be, and they, and they referred to them as gutter bums. And these gutter bums didn't have anybody to help. There was nothing to help them with. The families didn't even want them around anymore because they would go out and get drunk time and time again. They'd get right back to the bottle. And so Silkworth says that what we have to have is total absence. That's the only thing that we know of is total absence. In other words, total absence is to keep from starting. That was my problem. Is my life was so unmanageable, I couldn't keep from not starting. Things were so damn miserable that I had to have a drink just to relax. And then you come into Alcoholics Anonymous and they say, well, you've got to change your whole thinking. Now, you don't have to do much. The steps change it. You just have to do the steps. And guess how we fight those steps? Who wants to do those steps? God, I don't want to do those steps. But it's the thing that we have to have. And I walked down those steps. The first one was honesty. All I had to do was be honest with myself. The second one was hope. And the hope was that these guys sitting across the table said, told me that if you are willing, if you are willing, this higher power, you have to have the belief or the faith that this higher power is going to restore you back to sanity. See, what was wrong was my thinking. My thinking had to be changed because I had that alcoholic mind. All I thought about was the drink would fix me. And so I had to change my thinking to that this spiritual program, if you will, will help me go through those steps. I may be able to not think about it so much anymore. And so I walked down those steps. The third step basically tells us that all we are are self-centered people. All the time we want our way. Do you ever notice that the only time we have difficulty is when we try to rationalize and justify our behavior? I want this. I want what I want when I want it. 
And when you look at that, when you look at that, all you see is us playing God. No wonder we didn't have a higher power in our life because we're so damn busy controlling things, doing things, running things that we couldn't even see it. And once we see that, then all we have to do, and it's very simple, it points it out, it says, if you do this, he will provide everything that you need. Everything that you need. Now, I came in here. I went to Sunday school, church, or folks sent us. They didn't go to Sunday school or church, but they sent us kids. I went with my sister every Sunday. I sat next to her every Sunday. She got religion and I got not. <laughs> How did that happen? All I heard was a minister one time said, you're going to go to hell if you do this, that, and the next thing. And I did some of those things. Why would you want to get close to somebody who's going to strike you down like lightning? So I feared that. I didn't want any part of that deal. And so the book says, and this is what the book says, as soon as we're able to lay aside any prejudice that we may have and have the willingness to believe in a power greater than ourselves, something other than me, we commence to get results even though we can't define or comprehend that power, which is God. I didn't call it God. The book called it God. The authors of this book called it God. Okay? And so I had to believe in their God. And so when you come to that third step, very simple, it says, God, I offer myself to thee. So basically, I give him me. Now, he already had me, but I had to say, you take me. And so we go through that, build with me as, as you so choose, not as I want it, not as my way, so to speak, but your way. And anyway, we get through that, and then the next thing it says, this will have no permanent effect unless at once faced with strenuous effort to get rid of those things that have been blocking us. And that was my problem. My voice in my head was my ego or my self-pity or my self-centeredness or my self-self-self in my head. And so I had to get rid of that. I'm going to speed this up a little bit because somebody told me I want to get how many more minutes? Five? Six? Ten? Any? Twenty minutes? Oh, oh, shit, I'm in good shape. I'm in good shape. So, so, so anyway, I, I go and look at that stuff, and I follow the book, you know, and it, and it says this is how we do this. This is how we do it. And first of all, uh, uh, Clarence Snyder, who happened to be one of those first hundred, we, Wes and I got to see him in Rockford, Illinois, along with our wives. We went to Rockford, Illinois, and, and Clarence Snyder was the only living soul that was one of the authors in this book. He was one of the first hundred. Okay, And so he told us how this all came to be in. And Clarence said, we used to always, Wes and I used to always argue about when should we get a newcomer in the loop here? When should we give it to them? Because a lot of times, you know, newcomers won't get into the steps right away. And if you don't get them into the steps after two and a half, three months, they'll fly. We'll, you know, they'll fly. I mean, it happened most of the time. So we used to always try to lasso them at two and a half. So we asked Clarence, what we asked Clarence, Clarence, when should we get these newcomers in, into the steps? And he says, well, how soon do they want to get well? And that's what it is. How soon do you want to get well? That's how soon you should get into the steps. And so Clarence had what we call this manifestations of self, which was 20, 20 things like self-pity, uh, self-justification, uh, all the defects of character that you have. He had 20 of them. And you look through that 20 for your character defects. And most of the time we have 18 or 19 of them out of the 20. Most of most alcoholics have that. But the next thing it says, of all of those 20, resentment is the number one offender. And so it takes us to look at resentment. Now, when they told me, and this is what they told me, they had a guy park right in front of the door. And every time I walked by him, he would ask me if I'd done my four-step yet. Next, next meeting I'd come to, I'd walk right by him. He'd say, you done your four-step yet? And after about the third or fourth time, I did my four-step and I put his name right at the top. Because I hated him. I hated him. But he got me to do the fourth step. And I listed my resentments, my fears, my faults, and my sex conduct to the best of my ability. I went back and they said, well, how? I said, how far do you have to go back? He says, the logs go back as far as you can remember. And so I went back, far back as I can remember. And I can remember as a kid, <clears throat> I feared my father terribly. My father had a vicious temper, vicious temper. So I, I, I can remember when eating at the table, I had two older sisters, and they sat on this side, and my mom sat on this side, I sat there, and my dad sat here. And he'd come flying across the room, and if I didn't have the two sisters on one side and my mom on the other side, man, I couldn't take off running. Can you imagine the day that I finally could outrun my dad? Oh, shit, it was hallelujah, you know. I could finally outrun him. 
But until that time, I was petrified. You know, I was scared because he had such a vicious temper. Well, I, I, I looked at that. But the more, as I, I, as I went to it, I can remember that, that there was this little girl. That was my neighbor. And my dad worked for a county construction outfit, built roads, uh, dug ditches, and built highways and whatnot, cat and scraper. And I used to have this old tricycle, this old tricycle. And, and it was my, my caterpillar, you know, and I'd ride it down to the end of the block. And then I had this new trike because my two older sisters got bicycles, so they gave me their new trike. That was my car. And so I'd take my caterpillar away down the road, and then I'd go and get my car, and I'd drive it down there, and then when it got dinner time, I'd take my car, and I'd drive it back to the house for dinner, and then after dinner, I'd take the truck. Well, one day I was working, beat the band, and I looked back, and this little girl was driving my car, you know, driving my new trike. And so I went back there and had a few words with her. And so she went to my mom's, my, my house, and knocked on the door, and my mom came to the house, and she said, Mrs. Borgen, Ole told me to go and piss up a rope. And I guess who got in trouble? I've been in trouble with women ever since. You know. <laughs> and, so, and so I went back that far. And, I, and I, I went back and I wrote everything down. I wrote everything down, you know. And, and, and I got looking at this after I was all done and I thought, what in the hell is this? But I heard myself telling a guy about it, about some of those things. And each time I told him a little bit about me, about my character, about my resemblance, my faults, my, my uh, sex conduct, and whatnot, whenever I told him something about that, I felt a little bit better. Because he didn't kill over, he didn't die, he didn't run out of the house, he didn't do any of it. And so I finally said, well, I think I can do this with one of those guys that they suggest, you know, a minister or a priest or whatever. So I went to the minister. I was going to, because the other guy, he was an A member, and he had to go home, so I couldn't finish it. But So I went to this minister guy, and I told him everything there was. And, you know, that minister said, after I was all done, the minister said, you know, Ollie, you're okay. You're one of God's kids. And I felt, that's all I ever wanted to be. I can remember walking around by myself, you know, in the yard, wondering, what the hell am I connected to? I'm not connected to anything. It was like I had a hole in my soul. And he, when he said that, it was just like I just got a plug to plug into that hole. I was connected to something. I was one of God's kids. Okay? And that's what I felt. I walked away from that, and I felt really, really good. And then it goes on to say, like my sponsor says, when we get into the sixth and seventh step, it's like a gift package. And the gift package is just this. I had a choice. I could live the way I was living. I could live that way if I wanted to. Or I could change and trust my higher power and and uh, accept the, the, the blessings thereof, or I could go back there and suffer the consequences thereof. There really wasn't any choice. Now in the old group, in the Oxford group, they had what they call four absolute, absolute love, absolute purity, absolute unselfishness, and, and absolute um, honesty. And those four absolutes is what the Oxford group practiced. Somebody asked Bill W., how come you didn't put the, the, the absolutes in those six and seven steps? And he says, well, it was kind of understood they were already in there. The real reason is because he didn't want to give Frank Buckman, the head of the Oxford group, the benefit of putting them in there. <laughs> but, no, but he didn't say that, of course. He said they're kind of in there. But then we go to the seventh step, and it says, my creator, that you should have all of me good and bad, to do with me as you so choose. Well, the good and bad, you see, we all have good qualities, and we have, all have some not-so-good qualities. Whenever we're not practicing the t steps, the... Good, the bad qualities have a tendency to surface a little bit more. We become a little bit more restless, a little bit more irritable, a little bit more whatever. Well, like I'm on the way out here, Sharon, I was driving down the road, and the, and the guy was next to us, and the guy pulled in front of us. And the guy next to us, he goes, <laughs> I mean, really, really. <laughs> and then he went his way, and he went his way, so what, yeah, what, I mean, really. It doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense. <laughs> doesn't make sense to me, but to him, obviously, it must make a lot of sense. But the good qualities that we have, the qualities, and, and I look at it this way. It, I ask for the things that will help me to be of maximum service to, to God and my people about me. So I guess my defects of character or my shortcomings that I want removed is those that will keep me in bed when the phone rings and a guy wants to talk. You know how... Some guys just want to, they just want to be a part of. 
They want to follow you around because they think, well, he's got something. I want to follow him around to see what the hell he's got. You know, and all we have to do is do the steps. You know, but, but sometimes people want your attention. Right? And if you're really busy, sometimes, you know, you want to say, give them to somebody else or something. But we can't do that, you see. It's like the guy called and he called from California. The guy from, wanted a guy from Minnesota, I think it was, to come out and see him. Or Canada, Winnipeg, Canada. And the guy says, well, can't there somebody out in California that can talk to that bird? And he said, no, he didn't call California. He called Manitoba. So you're the guy that should go. Pretty simple. He wanted to talk to you. And so sometimes we just have to ask him to remove that defect of character so that we can be of maximum service. And that's what it says. Be of maximum service to God and the people about me. And that's what it's all about. And so I do that. And then, of course, you get, you get to where we, we try to get right with everybody. We try to get right with my wife and my kids and my guys at work and everything. And everything went pretty good. Sharon and I sat down I and the boys and we tried to analyze the past as we now saw it. I understand that I hurt her. I understand I hurt her a lot. But what can you do to, to change or to, to fix that? All you can say is, I'm sorry. It don't, like, they, like, they're, like her saying is, once, you've, once you, the dish falls off the table and it smashes, uh, saying you're sorry doesn't fix the dish. You know, I got to somehow do something to show or be a better person. And we've been trying to do that now for a lot of years, you know. I mean, we've been trying to, and we get along basically pretty damn good, you know. And and uh, and we still love one another, and after 40 and a half, 48 and a half years, if you can say that, you're doing pretty damn good, you know, pretty damn good. Anyway, all these amends that we, all, all these amends that we try to make, some of them, we don't get the response that we'd like to, you know, the book says it. So you make your amends, guy throws you out of the office, so be it. You made your amends. It's his problem now, you know. Uh, and so that's the way it is. We we do what we can. And I, I, I made amends to the, my in-laws. They thought I was a... They didn't think I was very nice when we first met. In other words, they had... They didn't like me too well. But uh, they, at the end there, they thought I was a pretty good guy. And, and, uh, and so that helped. And, of course, my brothers and sisters... And, the one the hardest amend I had to make, and of course, when I made my amends to my dad, I told him I loved him the first time in my life that I ever told my dad I loved him. But my mom was the hardest one I had to make the amends to because you see, as I said, we were saving our nickels and dimes and quarters and half dollars to give to the bootlegger to buy booze. I took that money out of my mom's purse, you see. And so when you go back and you tell your mom, Mom, you know, I was the guy that took the money. And my sponsor taught me is when you're making amends, you Tell them what you want to fix or tell them what you did and how you're going to fix it. And then you shut your mouth and listen. And so I shut my mouth and listened. And my mom looked at me and she said, Well, Willie, I always felt like you were the guy that took it. Well, you could have knocked me over with a feather because it just about killed me. You know, I didn't want to tell my mom I did that. I really didn't want to tell my mom. I wanted my mom to think highly of me or well of me. I wasn't raised that way and I didn't. But she forgave me. My mom, and, 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 and then we get to, we get to go on, and, and, uh, and, uh, and, and so basically we try to live in, in, in the now. I think that when we first get here, when we first get here, they tell us to, to, to uh, stop drinking for one day. And when we go through these steps, then we get back to live one day. I live in the now. I live in 84 to 88. I live in steps 10 and 11. And so the book says just to like watch out for where you've been resentful, selfish, dishonest, or afraid. When these crop up, ask God. They don't say if they crop up. It says when they crop up, we ask God to remove them, and so on and so forth. Spiritual life is not a theory. We have to live it. Uh, all our activities, we ask what, you know, what God would want me to do in this situation and whatnot. But the spiritual awakening, if you will, the spiritual awareness that I got was when I got to the 11th step. Now, I told you I didn't have a God. But they told me to go home and pray, prayer, pray, and meditation. I didn't know what either one of those were, basically. And so with prayer, they said, all you have to do is list a bunch of stuff like in your head, rolling around in your head, list them on a paper. List them down on paper. And I'd list all those things on paper. And then they'd say, listen, listen to some of those things when they're coming back at you. And so 
I got to where I could go to meetings, and if I had thought about something or wrote something down three days ago, I could go to a meeting and be damned if somebody didn't give me the answer at the meeting. And so my God had a little skin on it, you see. It was around this, around this room. And, and, and that's how I started to be aware of things. Let me tell you, my mom got Alzheimer's. And Alzheimer's, I didn't think it was fair. I thought God played a hell of a trick on her. My mom worked hard all her life. She washed down with, in the old cold days, you know, when they had soot, she washed down walls and people's houses and worked hard all her life. And she got Alzheimer's. And I thought, what a hell of a thing to give somebody that's worked hard all her life to have Alzheimer's. And so we put her in a home, you know. And uh, home called me and said, Ola, you got to come get your mom. She's got to get her eyes checked. Well, I told him, I said, I knew that. Uh, she only had one eye. The other eye, my, my, my father, in a drunken rage, threw a hammer and it hit her in the eye and put out her eye. And so she only had one eye and that had immaculate degeneration. I think that's how you say that. Anyway, I went to the, to the, the doctor that does something with the eyes and they wanted, there was a requirement that I take her down there. And so I took her down there and when we were leaving there, I said, Mom, I said, Mom, you got to go to the bathroom, leaving a clinic. I said, Mom, you have to go to the bathroom. And she says, she said, and I said, well, why don't you go in there, Mom? If you're not back out in five minutes, I'll come in and get you, okay? So she went to the bathroom. It wasn't very long. She came back out. And so we started to go to my place because I knew she was a diabetic. She had to get something to eat. So I was going to home fix her something to eat. And so on the way home, she says, Oli, where are we at? I said, we're in Grand Forks, Mom. And so she said, okay. We went a block. She said, Oli, where are we at? We said, Grand Forks, Mom. Went another block. Oli, where are we at? And I said, we're in Grand Forks. And she said, oh, my, I don't know what I ever done. I said, what, Mom? What have you ever done? And she says, well, my eyes. I don't know what I've ever done to deserve this. But it could have been worse. She said, I could have lost my mind. <laughs> it was my higher power telling you, what are you worrying about? She doesn't even know where she's at. She doesn't even know she's in a home. She doesn't even know anything. The last four years of her life were the best four years of her life. She was in these homes laughing and having a good old time, just like she was in school. And so my higher power said, what are you doing? And so I, got, I thought I was pretty smart. I figured that out. I figured that out. We got home and I gave her a couple pieces of toast. And so we had to go. It's 150 miles up there. So we had to go. I said, okay, Mom, we got to go. But I said, do you have to go to the bathroom? And she says, already went. Don't you remember? <laughs> My higher power says, see, you're not so damn smart after all, are you? See, so those little things, those spiritual awakenings together, just shots like that every once in a while. Our thoughts are something comes in there that's totally different than what we normally think. And that, to me, is my, my higher power. And let me finish with this. In our 12-step, it says, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, I had to do the bloody steps before I got that spiritual experience. But when I got down to that 12-step, Sharon and I were talking about this today. I am no longer the same guy from whence I came. Now, if you don't believe me, you ask my wife after this meeting. I am no longer the same person. I'm totally different. And the only reason that happened is because I did the steps. The changing that we have to do is as a result of the steps. I can sit in, in this room all day and it's not going to mean that I'm going to change anything. Like Frank Milos in, in Chicago says, you can sit in a hen house all day and it doesn't mean you're going to turn into a chicken. You have to do something. You have to do something. In Alcoholics Anonymous, we have to do something. I borrowed what Mike, Pete, and John and Joe said, or whatever they said, I borrowed it. I didn't feel it, you see. You have to feel it. I had to feel it. And so that's what we talk about, the 12th step. And so we try to carry the message to alcoholics. And I go to a lot of different AA meetings, a lot of different AA groups, and they're not all the same. Sometimes you get just opinions, of course. We all got an opinion, right? But a lot of times we're not talking about alcoholics anonymous. This is what we need to talk about. Years ago, in, in, in the state that I'm from, we used to go to some smaller towns, and those guys used to talk about farming all the time at AA meetings. Farming, because they didn't know anything about the book of Alcoholics Anonymous, you see. But if we have the plan and we follow the directions, we get the results, we got something to give away. And so, there we are. I try to practice these, look at that, I used up all your time. I try to use, <laughs> practice these principles in all my affairs. That means at home, that means at work, that means out in society, that means everywhere. I want to leave you with this. I have this grandson over in California. I go, he's I, I, I go over there and watch him play baseball and he gets frustrated sometimes and, and sometimes he gets in trouble and sometimes this and sometimes that and I stick up for him, you know. I, 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 and then I, I always tell my daughter-in-law, I tell everybody, I say, well, 
no, he's okay. I said, you know, I used to do some of that stuff too. And I said, he's probably just a little bit like me. And she says, that's what we're afraid of. <laughs> but life is an enjoyment now. I got grandkids. I'm old enough to have grandkids now. I just love them all. My kids, my kids had two boys and they, they treated us far better than I treated them. Believe you me, they've never caused us a lick of problem. And, and, uh, and life is good. Life is really good. Sharon and I, we, we, uh, anything that comes down our path that we talk about or we try to find a solution, we, we try to sort it out to where it works for us. Not me, not her, but us. And, and to me, that's what it's all about. Um, uh, I thought, and, and I only had, and I'll finish with this, I only had two problem, real problem twice uh, in... Um, I was six years sober. My sponsor died in December. He had a massive heart attack, and it just about killed me. I didn't, I couldn't function. I went for the next six months or eight months. I said I even quit going to AA for a while because AA had gone sour. But every single night I went to bed, I cried, I cried, cried. I just couldn't let go of it. I just couldn't let go of it. And finally, I said to my higher power, got my knees, and I said, God, you got to take this because I'm driving my wife and boys nuts because I'm. I'm just not function, functional. And a week later, a guy from Oklahoma came and helped me to grow spiritually. And uh, and so I, I'm 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 grateful that that happened. During that time, though, my wife was talking to my youngest son, who was 10 years old at the time, and uh, he was smiling at her. He's, I thought he was laughing at her, and of course I scolded him, and I was I got that temper. That temper came back. That temper came back, and I could feel just a, just a, just a, just a going. And so I jumped in my car and I drove down the highway a few, about half an hour or what it was, tried to blow off steam. And I came back, and and my oldest boy who tried to stop me, who was 12, had his arm around his mom, and and my and Sharon was crying, and the and the youngest boy was gone. And so I said to the oldest boy, I said, "Where's Dan?" And he says, "He went around. He's on his bicycle. He ran around all the." looking in all the bars in town, thinking that you went back drinking. Now, I realized that I couldn't hurt my kids, my wife and my kids like that anymore. I'm a, I'm a grown man, and I've gotten this program. I can't act like that anymore. And so, again, my higher power takes that. I want to tell you the story about when my wife and, or my daughter-in-law was cleaning out her garage, and she asked me to clean it out. And she got in a box, and she looked at a piece of paper, and she said, have you seen this? And on this piece of paper, my son was a, got a new principal's job over at school in, in uh, La Quinta, California. And at this principal's school, he was getting to know his staff. And so they had all these questions, you know, what, what's your favorite color, who's your favorite act, whatever, just to get to know one another. Anyway, one of the questions is, who's your best friend? And on that answer was my wife. And it says, who do you admire most in life? And he said, my dad. Thank you, Alcoholics Anonymous.